beg full oily rags A fifty cent lighter Dreams of retirement in Cancun Burning ever brighter There's a lot of ways to make money in this world But I can't recommend insurance fraud Hello and welcome to episode 1626 of Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Meg Rowley of Fangraphs, and I am joined as always by Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Ben, how are you? Not too bad. How are you? Not too bad. All right. So, a couple newsy things I wanted to touch on before we get to our guest today, who is Sean Gibson, the great-grandson of Josh Gibson, the legendary Hall of Famer and Negro League's great He's also the executive director of the Josh Gibson Foundation, and we'll be talking to him about Gibson and his legacy and the Negro Leagues and the campaign to get Gibson's name on the MVP award in the majors. But before we get to that, some of you may have seen a report that MLB is trying to recoup some of its losses or claimed losses from the 2020 season by suing its insurers. And there's kind of a almost amusing item here that I just wanted to mention. So this is not unique to MLB. Lots of people are trying to get money back that they lost or lost revenue from the strange circumstances of the pandemic. And it seems like based on the consensus of people who are much more expert in this sort of thing than I am, that this is a long shot that MLB may not even think they have a a great shot here that it's just kind of, well, they might as well try and maybe they'll have a sympathetic judge or maybe they'll end up with a settlement or something. Seems to be worth trying, evidently, but not likely because most insurance policies have some sort of pandemic or virus exception. Those insurance providers, they're not dumb. They plan for these things and anticipate (laughs) these things. And so that's one of the conditions that is often in these all-risk policies, that it's just sort of an exception is made. Well, if there's a, a virus or if there's a pandemic, we're not liable. And some minor league teams tried to do this too. They tried to sue their insurance providers over the summer, and that was tossed out. It was dismissed. And I think they tried to claim that it wasn't the pandemic or the viruses directly. Like That's the thing. Because of these exceptions, you can't just say, well, we didn't get to play our games because there was a virus because the providers have already provided for that, so to speak. And so you have to come up with an alternate way to make the claim. And so I think the minor league teams tried to say, well, it wasn't actually the virus that prevented us from playing. It was MLB. MLB canceled the season. They didn't provide their players to their affiliates, so we couldn't play. And the judge said, no, nice try. (laughs) Nice way to get around this, but that didn't work. And so what MLB is trying to do here is not to say that it was a pandemic and a virus and they couldn't play, but that there was like physical damage caused by the coronavirus. So I'm reading from Rob Maines's breakdown at Baseball Prospectus, and this was reported by the AP on Friday. And according to that article, MLB teams are claiming billions of dollars on unsold tickets, millions of lost stadium revenues, concessions, parking suite and luxury seat licenses, in-park merchandise and corporate sponsorships, over a billion dollars of lost local and national media, and tens of millions of lost MLB advanced media revenues. And the key claim in here seems to be this, and I'm quoting... The presence of the coronavirus and COVID-19 
including but not limited to coronavirus droplets or nuclei on solid surfaces and in the air at insured property, has caused and will continue to cause direct physical damage to physical property and ambient air at the premises. Coronavirus, a physical (laughs) substance, has attached and adhered to plaintiff's property, and by doing so, altered that property. Such presence has also directly resulted in loss of use of those facilities. So, what? <laughs> yeah. So they're they're trying to say that the coronavirus has like caused physical damage to the air or the property at the places where you would play games, and so therefore they're saying it's akin to. Uh, tornado or something it's like you know it's like if the stadium were knocked down or or the stands fell or something it's the coronavirus is attaching itself to the ballpark and making it dangerous to play there that's basically how they're trying to get around the exception here it seems like like we haven't seen the lawsuit itself and we haven't seen the insurance policies but It seems like because they are making the claim in this way that they are hoping to kind of do an end around the exception here and uh, doesn't seem likely to work. Well, Ben, I have a couple of things. The first of which is my my very favorite kind of litigation is the "Hey, maybe this will work" kind. Like <laughs> yeah. that that seems like a really good use of our judicial resources. Apart from uh-huh. anything else in this moment, are they claiming like because the surfaces then had to be sanitized more than they typically would? That like that caused some sort of physical damage and and thus like increased depreciation of the they played a baseball game in seattle in the middle of a forest fire yeah like that's <laughs> what? making it seem like some sort of noxious ooze that's just like attaches to the ballpark and and erodes it just eats away at the foundation or now, something now i'm envisioning the coronavirus as the the bad guy in fern gully yeah. that just <laughs> you know is a giant spew of oil and and pollution <laughs> that kind of crawls its way across the ballpark as it yeah. tries to bring down uh, 30 <laughs> right. major league stadiums in a cascade of brick and steel. Like, what on earth? <laughs> yeah, it's some sort of, like, black mold or, or something, some nefarious substance. And according to Rob in his piece at BP, evidently there is some precedent for this. Over the summer, there was one ruling where a federal judge in Missouri ruled that COVID-19 constitutes a physical substance that attached to and damaged the properties. In that case, it was a group of hair salons and restaurants making them unusable. But in most cases since then, that claim has been dismissed, basically. And so it worked once, but it hasn't usually worked. And also, I think since that ruling, it's become more clear that the coronavirus isn't really spread so much by people picking right. it up by, you know, touching things and, and physical substances. It's not impossible that that could happen. You should still wash your hands, but mostly it's airborne. And so this seems like a really a long shot, a stretch. And and the ambient air thing, it's right, like, like... the air isn't there anymore. It's different air now. <laughs> I know. The air is circulating. It's like, I guess, unless it's like an indoor park and you're counting the air as as part of the property, it it just seems pretty convoluted. I also just find there some there to be something remarkably silly and and just deeply dumb about 
simultaneously claiming that you have done a more than sufficient job protecting your your players and other ballpark employees such that they can play games yeah. while also claiming that the damage that the virus does is both physical <laughs> and lasting enough to justify yes. an insurance payout. Exactly. Like, is, isn't the more probable answer here? I I actually don't have a hard time believing that, you know, there there was probably less than usual upkeep at most major league parks just because you don't have the typical staff there to you know mm-hmm. to clean things and do all the stuff on the concourse that they would do under normal circumstances but that's an argument for continuing to employ your game day staff through a pandemic not making an insurance claim right <laughs> yeah so i'm reading from craig calcaterra's coverage of this in his newsletter and craig is a, a lawyer although non-practicing these days and he wrote That's right. They're trying to argue that virus-carrying droplets are like hail or tornado damage, physical damage leading to a loss, which would always trigger coverage as opposed to all of this being a function of a disease affecting humans, which led to both government-imposed and self-imposed shutdowns. And he continues, like, even if they get past a, a dismissal, there are two problems he sees here. First, quote, if MLB contends that this is all about physical damage to physical property and ambient air at the premises of the stadiums, as you just said, Meg, they're going to have to explain why they constantly allowed their players, coaches, and team personnel into those stadiums, both before and after the season began in July. Can a player under MLB's theory successfully file a grievance against their club for making them work in unsafe conditions and damaged property? I'm guessing MLB would say no. Second, if this suit were to proceed, MLB would have to provide evidence of its damages. It would have to provide actual documentation of their losses and allow opposing counsel, sharp, high-priced lawyers hired by insurance companies, to pick their claimed losses apart. That's not a thing Major League Baseball is generally too keen on doing, mostly because they lie pretty constantly about their financial status for strategic reasons. So he concludes that MLB probably does not have a case here, and it's just a matter of, well, it'll cost us a few hours of lawyer fees to file this thing and you know we're asking for billions of dollars in damages here so if we get something even if there's a settlement or something even if we have a sympathetic judge might as well try it what's the downside people will joke about us on a baseball podcast but that's uh it's it's bold it's audacious yeah, I, I think that it's an interesting strategy to flirt with discovery of financial documents. Yeah. I, I think that that is that feels like playing with with fire. I mean, when I went to T-Mobile, the very nice woman who checked me in and made asked me questions and made sure that I was not going to be a known pandemic risk did not say. And also, this place is like Fern Gully, so you know, watch out for that. <laughs> yeah. I just uh, we are a litigious society, and it has mm-hmm. all sorts of odd effects on the way that we legislate things and think about public policy but also this is just so obviously silly that i i really struggle to to wrap my head around it yep so for anyone who is wondering about the legitimacy of that claim i'll link to uh, craig's coverage and rob's coverage and you can read about it further In other news, as was projected by our guest last week, Jason Koskri, the Yomiuri Giants ace Tomoyuki Sugano has been posted now officially. That has happened. It was still in progress when we talked to Jason last week. So 
his posting period begins on Tuesday morning at 8 a.m. Eastern, I think, and then will continue through January 7th. And teams have those 30 days to bid for Sukano's services. So we talked to Jason about how great a pitcher he is and his record in NPB. And I guess you can also find some coverage of that at Fangraphs, I presume. Yes, I will remind everyone that the board now has a a tab called International Players, which combines uh, international amateurs that typically would uh, be eligible to sign a contract with a big league club on July 2nd, but now we're going to be signing in January uh, because of the pandemic. Although, uh, based on Eric's conversations with uh, league sources, I think the general consensus is that that shift in the calendar is likely to be uh, permanent or at least uh, perceived for the foreseeable future. So given the timing of that, we now have the international amateurs and also international pro players who would be eligible to be posted in one consolidated board. So you can see it as sort of a rolling pref list on Eric's part for the international market. So uh, there are scouting reports for all of those guys and all the typical uh, goodies that you've come to expect from the board. So go check it out. Cool. So teams will be bidding on Sugano, and then there's a fee that the Giants get for posting him, which I think is 20% of the contract's first $25 million plus 17.5% of the contract's next $25 million in value, plus an additional 15% of any money guaranteed thereafter. I'm cribbing from MLB Trade Rumors, so... We will discuss the Sugano sweepstakes as it proceeds and as he ends up somewhere. And I think the last thing I wanted to bring up was the Phillies. There were some rumors over the weekend that the Phillies were open to trading Zach Wheeler or were letting teams know that they were open to trading Zach Wheeler. And that was reported first by ESPN's Buster Olney and then was very vehemently denied by the Phillies themselves, by owner John Middleton and team president Andy McPhail. And Middleton said that he would not trade Wheeler for Babe Ruth. He did not specify whether he meant a living Babe Ruth or the current (laughs) Babe Ruth, or is that a Babe Ruth that uh, you just plopped down from the 1920s into 2021? Or is that a Babe Ruth who is developed in these uh, circumstances and is able to take advantage of all of the modern training techniques? I don't think he went into detail about that. Certainly, uh, Babe Ruth probably worth more as a player than Zach Wheeler in his prime if you just compared to his peers. But that's always a difficult conversation. Anyway, the point is he's denying it. Jeff Passan of ESPN then backed up Olney's report and said that according to multiple executives from other teams, Olney's report was accurate, that the Phillies have let other teams know that they're open to or receptive to trading Wheeler. And this might just be the standard sort of, well, we'll listen to trades for anyone because why wouldn't we if you want to make us some incredible offer? But I thought of this in the context of Sam Miller's last article for ESPN, which was published last week. Yes, sad. And Sam wrote about the Phillies rebuild and how it sort of stalled. The headline, which I'm sure Sam didn't write, is how the Philadelphia Phillies botched their rebuild and what it tells us about tanking. And this is a topic I've kind of been interested in, too, because the the Phillies just have not come through their teardown and rebuild the way that a lot of other teams have. And as Sam mentioned here, 
there's a, a long track record now of teams rebuilding in more or less the same way, and it's worked out for a lot of them. So he wrote, the teardown and rebuild strategy worked for newly hired GMs in Houston, in Chicago, in Atlanta, and to a lesser but still consequential extent in Milwaukee, and it appears to have worked in San Diego and the south side of Chicago. All those teams made the playoffs on schedule, and most ended up with their best teams in decades. So what happened to the Phillies, and what does it tell us about rebuilding? And, you know, there's still hope for the Phillies. They could still put good teams together and make the playoffs, but they're at the point now where, as Sam points out, they're not a young team. They're older than average this past year, and they're even losing some of the players they signed, like Real Muto and David Robertson's contract is up, and some of the guys they brought in are now departing or potentially departing, and so it's not really clear what the future is there. Of course, you know, Bryce Harper will be there for another decade as of now, and, and there's a lot of other talent there, but it is kind of perplexing. Why did the Phillies fail, or, or why have they failed thus far? When before that, it seemed like, well, all right, you just have to decide we're going to be bad for a while and it'll be an ugly few years, but we'll trade all our veterans and we'll build up our farm system and then those guys will develop and get good and then we'll turn into a perennial contender on the other side of that. And in the Phillies case, it just hasn't happened. I mean, they haven't even had a, a winning team. They've come close, but they were 80 and 82 and then 81 and 81 and then 28 and 32 in the shortened season. So they have not made the playoffs. They have not exceeded 500. So what happened here and what will happen next? I think that there's a point at the end of Sam's piece that I think is a, a really good one. I mean, there are a number of points in this piece that are really good. It turns out Sam Miller's a really good baseball writer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I think that the one of the things that, that struck me at toward the end of this piece was when Sam says, and crucially, the way that having four managers and five hitting instructors and so on might have contributed to those good prospects failing to make the transition to the majors, because he identifies two sort of potential explanations for why Philly's rebuild has sputtered to this point. And the first is that the prospects they developed haven't developed all the way, right? That they made them prospects, but couldn't make them major leaguers. And that there's also this part that is just kind of the fickle nature of the schedule fluctuating, right? That mm -hmm. the, the Phillies have in aggregate been spot on when it comes to their zips projections for how many wins they've had, but they haven't gotten them all in the years that zips anticipated. And so it's sort of this combination of things. And I think that, you know, this is like the most obvious point I could possibly make, but the the strategy of tearing down, getting cheap, and building back depends on the prospects you develop being really good, viable major leaguers, and the Phillies have examples of that, some of whom are still in their organization, some of whom have been traded away to bring in really good players like Real Muto, but there has also been operating in the background some inconsistency from an organizational perspective when it comes to on-field management and instruction. And I think that there are, you know, documented instances of 
you know, pitching coaches who didn't quite gel with pitchers and sort of insisted on a uniform approach to pitching that looked a lot like what we've seen in Houston with a lot of like high rising fastballs. And mm-hmm. that hasn't always worked. And, you know, then you, you know, you watched them play this year and some of those hitters just had been tweaked to within an inch of their lives. And you could tell that their swings were not where they were supposed to be. So I think that the strategy is smart in conception, but like anything else, depends a great deal on the execution. And there's always going to be variability and and sort of unpredictability that, as Sam notes, you hope like a five-year time span allows you to tame, but it's not always guaranteed to work, right? And it's mm-hmm. not guaranteed even when it works to the point of you getting to the postseason or having a winning season isn't necessarily going to result in you winning a World Series. So I think that there is a lot about that strategy that sort of makes sense, and it certainly dovetails nicely with the prevailing economic wisdom within the game. But I think that the the extent to which that economic wisdom has perhaps made it a more attractive option than you necessarily have like the players or personnel to execute probably shouldn't be underestimated here. Mm-hmm. But it's so weird. Philly's such a strange, it, they're so strange because it's hard to fault them in the way that we normally fault rebuilds, right? Because they have yeah. brought in exciting, dynamic players, right? They signed Bryce yep. Harper. They signed Bryce Harper to a contract that will take me like into my almost 50s, <laughs> which we really just have to think about every day and stare <laughs> in the face when we get out of bed and then decide to carry on anyhow, right? And so they've done that part and they have spent money and they have had some you know, big misses when it comes to prospects, but they've also had big hits. So it's hard to know exactly where to fault them, except when it comes to sort of the crossroads they find themselves at now, which is I think that because we haven't seen a lot of rebuilds sort of sputtered in this particular way, we haven't had an instance where we've needed, you know, a GM to be able to convince the ownership group like, Five years wasn't enough. We need seven. Yeah. Right? You got to keep spending now. Like, we we still have some work to do. Like, we're only going to be able to make this work if we retain Real Muto and go get a good free agent starter. We're only going to be able to make this work if we retool our entire bullpen, right? I think that we haven't had a lot of instances where five isn't enough. And so it's like, and now we need two more. <laughs> right. Yeah, and it doesn't seem like they're cleaning house exactly. Like they got rid of Matt Clentak, who was their GM, but at least on an interim basis, they just elevated his assistant GM, Ned Rice. You know, McPhail is still there, so it's not like they completely slashed and burned that front office. So they are in the process of hiring another executive, of course, and they did replace their director of player development a couple of years ago, but they must be content with some of what they've done there. And It is hard to pinpoint one thing, which I I guess is why Sam wrote about it, to try to figure out what exactly went wrong. And I picked them as my flop team for 2020 coming into the year in our preseason staff predictions at the Ringer. And that wasn't because I thought they would be a, a truly terrible team or anything. It's just because 
at this point, they were almost a flop already because they weren't really favored to be a playoff team, at least in the pre-16 team playoff format. And at this point in their cycle, they should be at that point where they're a favorite. They're a playoff lock or at least a team that you expect to be there. And the Phillies had a chance, of course, and they came pretty close. Like they were in it, you know, in the shortened season right up until the last few days. But the fact that it was so tenuous already represented a failure of sorts. And as Sam mentioned, like there are more obvious ways that it could go wrong and it didn't really go wrong. Like, you know, he notes that, well, you could start your rebuild so late that you have no really valuable players left to deal at that point. And maybe they waited too long. I think people were saying, well, Ruben Amaro should start the rebuild before he actually started it. And he has acknowledged that he should have started it sooner, but they still had some pretty valuable trade chips. And I don't know that that was it. And as Sam mentioned, like you can fail to improve the farm system, but they didn't do that. They really improved their farm system rankings dramatically and had one of the the best systems in baseball. But you could also just have some truly terrible free agent deals. Like once you start spending money, you could go after underperforming players, guys who don't deliver. And that hasn't really been the case for them so much either. Like Harper's been good for them. Wheeler's been good for them. Gregorius was good for them. Others, uh, you know, Gene Segura and Arietta and Andrew McCutcheon, you know, some of them got hurt and weren't great, but they were fine. They were okay. Carlos Santana and Real Muto's been good for them. He's been fine. You know, it, it hurts that they gave up Sanchez to get him, but he did what he was supposed to do, basically. Right. So it's not like every high-priced or high-profile player they've imported has uh, underperformed. So it's not any of that, really. It's just, as you noted and as Sam noted, a lot of their prospects in that first wave just didn't really pan out or, or haven't panned out yet and haven't done so with the Phillies. So, you know, the, the J.P. Crawfords and Nick Williamses and others who were in that crop just haven't really delivered. And and some have, you know, they obviously have some quite good players on that team who are homegrown and right. home developed, but it's just not enough. And you have uh, high profile flops, I suppose it's fair to say at this point, like Mickey Moniak, their number one pick, but you do have uh, Aaron Nola and Reese Hoskins and others, but it's just not enough. They haven't hit on as many of those guys as say, you know, the Astros or or Atlanta or or other teams did or or the White Sox after their rebuilds. And something Sam didn't really get into, but I think is worth noting is that it's a little easier to do the teardown and rebuild and have it work when you are one of the only teams doing that or you're the first team doing that. And the Phillies have been doing that at a time when other teams have been doing that. And so it can't work for everyone as well. And, you know, one of the other examples of a team that did it pretty successfully, Atlanta, they're the direct competition for the Phillies. They're in the Phillies division. They're beating out the Phillies for division titles. So if Atlanta had not done what they did and had it work so well, then you can add some wins onto the Phillies tally and and maybe a couple division titles. You never know. So they're going head to head against a team or multiple teams that were trying to do the same thing. And, you know, it's just not going to work as well for everyone. So as Sam mentioned, 
maybe it's a, a good thing that this has proven to be not a foolproof strategy because if you're against it, if you think it's bad for baseball, and I'm kind of on the fence about whether I think the teardown and rebuild is bad. You know, I, I don't know. It, it has worked in many cases, and I think maybe the, the few down years were worth it given what came next, and maybe it's preferable to just kind of being in limbo, being in mediocrity for year after year. But if you are against this strategy, then it's not so bad that it has proven to be less than 100% effective because maybe fewer teams will want to adopt it in the future. Yeah, I think that my take on teardowns tends to live kind of where yours does. I think that my tolerance is only for one at a time, though. And so I think your point about there being sort of multiple clubs like this executing a similar strategy is a good one. I think that, you know, it takes a lot of money and talent to be like it takes a lot of money and talent to be the Dodgers, but it doesn't necessarily take a lot of money to be perennially like pretty good Mm -hmm. and so you know in order to execute that strategy like the rays do you embrace your own set of sort of icky stuff Mm -hmm. but i think that i am generally pretty sympathetic to the idea that baseball is incredibly hard that even over the course of 162 game season you can just have down years from key contributors And being bad kind of happens, and that's a bummer for fans, but it's a very different experience to go into a season thinking, my team might be good at baseball, and we have a shot, than going and being like, we have to care about process. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And I think that like there are definitely going to be fans and analysts who, regardless of the state of the roster or how much money is committed to payroll or where a team is expected to fall in terms of its competitive cycle, there are always going to be fans and and analysts who are like process is fun like i we all enjoy that part part of why we write about baseball and write about it the way we do is that the the machinations of putting it together are interesting to us that's a cool puzzle that we like to unpack but Mm -hmm. i don't think it's great for the sport if we're like puzzling all the time and then there are 10 good teams (laughs) like that's a problem (laughs) it's not good for baseball and so i think that I agree with Sam that it is good that this is not the only way that one can successfully build a baseball team because I want clubs that look around and say, we're just going to develop well and hire smart baseball folks who can help us get the most out of our players. And then we're going to pay those players or pay other players when they become available on the free agent market and have sort of a perpetual contention machine. I want them to be incentivized to do that. And I think that their presence in baseball is important. So I don't want it to this to be the only avenue that teams have to eventually find success. Yeah, I just like who amongst us hasn't failed accidentally? I have a lot of sympathy for that. That's very human. Failing on purpose for eventual success really can only be tolerated in very small doses. It's like Thanksgiving (laughs) food. It's good to eat it once a year because then you don't get sick of it. You know, you don't want your whole year of Thanksgiving food. You're not you don't want to eat stuffing in August. That sounds terrible, Ben. Thanksgiving food has become such a divisive subject. 
<laughs> yeah, and I, I hesitate to bring it up because um, I think I've told this to you, Ben. I uh, Food Twitter is exhausting to me in a uniquely <laughs> irritating way. Yeah. So uh, I don't want to. You should eat whatever you like as long as it's not like dolphins. <laughs> yes, I don't agree do that. with that. It's all so subjective. It's a, a matter of taste, literally. So it's not all that much fun to argue about, I find. But yeah. <laughs> eat what you like, except for dolphins and some other stuff. And like yeah. people. Don't eat people. No. Yeah. No. Anyway. All right. I wonder what the fanatic tastes like. Not like the- Oh, jeez. Yeah. Like I, I'm envisioning- I should make this very clear. I am not envisioning the human person inside the fanatic costume, nor right. am I asking the question, what does the fanatic costume taste like? I am mm -hmm. imagining the fanatic as like a mythical creature that exists in the wild, and I'm wondering what one of those tastes like. Yes, or a gritty. Does it taste gritty? Or you could never catch a gritty, though. We'll never know. You can't ever no. catch gritty. I think <laughs> I think gritty's savvy. He, he's got... <laughs> Is Gritty a he? Does Gritty have a gender? I don't know the I answer to don't that. No, yeah, I know. So so little is known about Gritty, really. No, because Gritty <laughs> is a gem. Yeah, it must we all be, understand must be Gritty in our own personal way. So let's take a quick break and we'll get to Sean. And I guess uh, full disclosure, you and I are both members of the Baseball Writers Association of America, yes. which hands out this MVP award. And we were both, as was every other member, asked to vote on the proposal to strip the award from Landis's name a couple months ago. And we have not, as of yet at least, been asked to weigh in or, or vote on any potential replacements. So as you will hear Sean say, this could be coming to a head sometime soon. And I don't know if uh, all the members will be surveyed or, or polled or not, but there have been various proposals for whose name could be on the MVP award, if anyone's name is. So I think temporarily, at least, there was no name on the 2020 award, which is a, a possibility. You could just make it the MVP award and not name it after anyone. But it seems like it would be a missed opportunity, I think, not to name it after someone, not to have it honor someone. So I'm in favor of it being named after someone. And as Sean notes, a, a few people have been at least informally proposed. Branch Rickey, Josh Gibson, who we'll be talking about, Frank Robinson. And Ricky, I guess, would be consistent with naming it after a non-player, Landis, and of course it would be symbolically satisfying, I guess, to go from someone who was an impediment to integration to someone who spearheaded integration, but to me it seems like it's a, it's an award for players. It should be yeah. named after a player, <laughs> I, I, I think. And I don't think you can go wrong with either Gibson or Robinson. I, I think they're both have strong cases and we'll talk about those in our upcoming conversation. I think since I became aware of this debate, I tended to favor Robinson just because it seems so appropriate to me to have the guy who won the award in both leagues have it be named after him. And of course, he was a, a trailblazer as a manager and as an executive in MLB. And if you are someone who thinks it's sort of a sticky issue that Gibson never played in the AL or the NL, that's obviously not an issue for Robinson. So I guess if I had to choose, that's the side I'd come down on. But it's, I'm certainly not against the, the Gibson candidacy. I think they'd both be good and We'll hear Sean list out the reasons why he thinks uh, Gibson is a great choice. And I think really they both are. So hopefully one of them sometime soon will uh, have the award named after them. 
Yeah, I will admit that and this is perhaps embarrassing. I did not realize before the Associated Press article about Landis being on the trophy came out that he that the award was named after yeah, him. Right. I did yeah. not know that. It's not like, oh, the Landis name was uh, often mentioned when we were talking about the MVP award. Right. I think it was sort of a surprise to everyone. And then in that same article, I don't remember who among the the BBWA leadership it was who said this, but they said, you know, if, if anyone, I think it might have been Jack O'Connell, if anyone brought this up now that we could we could discuss it. And I uh, I think that they didn't realize quite how many emails they were going to get that day <laughs> being like, um, we probably need to take his name off of there. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I am glad that we were able to resolve that, at least to the point of not having the 2020 awards bear it. But yes, there are a number of very deserving players who I think are deserving in their own rights and are, are also sort of an important statement to make about what we think that award should honor and recognize. And so, yeah, I really appreciated hearing from Sean. I I am also not decided as a voter, Mm -hmm. but it was really great to hear his perspective on why Gibson is such a a worthy candidate to assume the name. And yeah, even if you didn't know that Landis's name was on the award, it was literally on the award. Like they hand out a plaque that the player gets and it says Kennesaw Mountain Landis Memorial Baseball Award, or it used to say that, and and then MVP in much smaller letters in the middle with the player's name there. So it it was very much there, even if uh, a lot of people didn't know about it. So, all right. So let's take a quick break, and we'll be back with Sean Gibson to talk about his great-grandfather, Josh. Ooh, Josh Gibson Played for the Pittsburgh Crawfords Played in the Homestead Braves In the Negro League You had no peer It was you and Satchel Paige Just before Jackie broke in At 35 years of age They laid you down in Pittsburgh In an unmarked grave In October of this year The Baseball Writers Association of America Voted to remove the name of Kennesaw Mountain Landis From the MVP award Landis's role in maintaining the color barrier in baseball was the impetus for that move, but as of now, no new name has been suggested to replace him. The association will meet in 2021 when it's safe to do so to decide if there will be a name on the league's MVP awards at all or if there will simply be a blank award. And there are a number of potential players that have emerged as candidates to take his place and to discuss one of them. We are joined today by Sean Gibson, the executive director of the Josh Gibson Foundation and Josh Gibson's great-grandson. Sean, thanks so much for joining us. No, thanks for having me. I think we're going to talk about the foundation and your campaign in a moment. But before we did that, I wanted to ask you what it was like growing up knowing that you were Josh Gibson's great-grandson. He was an incredible player with an important legacy on and off the field, but obviously the discrimination that he faced means that the context of that legacy is complicated and can't be ignored. And so I'm curious when you first realized who your great-grandfather was and what it was like growing up knowing that you were part of his lineage. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, well, first of all, it's an honor to be his grandson, great-grandson. I didn't really realize it until probably about 12, 13 years old. I mean, you would hear stories through the family, like family reunions and family gatherings. And my grandfather is Josh Gibson Jr., so they would say Big Josh. So Big Josh was Josh Gibson, and then they'll say mm-hmm. Little Josh, meaning Jr. 
And so you always hear stories about Big Josh did this or Big Josh, Big Josh. And, you know, as a kid, I would hear these stories and never really made any sense to me. So I was in the seventh or eighth grade and a buddy of mine, we were in the library doing a project for school. And he brings out a Josh Gibson book that he found that he found in the library, not found what he saw in the library. And so at that time, um, I did take the book out and I took it home and I was talking to my mother. So my mother is a Gibson. So people get confused and think that my father's a Gibson, but my mother and father was never married. So my mother's actually a Gibson. And so I remember going back home and said, hey, mom, is this the person you guys always talk about? And she was like, yes. Oh, wow. <laughs> and so it was that actually, you know, because, you know, as a 12, 13 year old kid, you don't expect to go to the library and see a book on a family relative. And so at that time, that's when I really realized some of the stories that my family were saying during these feather gatherings and family reunions, that they were talking about Big Josh and how great of a player he was. And not only a great player, but a great person. So I would say around the age of 12 or 13 is when I actually found out about Josh Gibson. And what made you decide to devote part of your life to extending his legacy and all the other things that the foundation does? Because I can imagine that someone might think, well, it's cool that I'm related to Josh Gibson and it's fun to hear the stories, but you never got to meet him. And maybe it would seem sort of abstract or or that connection would seem a little Mm -hmm. less personal. But clearly it means a lot to you and you've done a lot to ensure that it means something to many other people, too. Yeah. So my grandfather, Josh Gibson Jr., he actually started the foundation. He was the one who got it incorporated to 501c3 status. Once I got out of college in 93, that's when I got involved with the foundation. And once I got involved, I started adding components of the actual programs that we do, the scholarship programs, the fundraising efforts. So I made it a full-time business for myself. And I've been involved with it since, uh, like I said, 93, 94 and we have grown since then. Um, but it all became with my grandfather, Josh Gibson Jr. You know, he always said that he wanted to keep his father's legacy alive. And so he created a foundation. But the most important thing is it was not just about Josh Gibson. He wanted to keep the other great Negro League baseball players alive as well. Um, so we focused on, like I said, our, our main focus is education and athletics for inner city kids. But my grandfather had a vision to keep his father's, just basically to keep his father's legacy alive, and especially the two great teams right here in Pittsburgh, which is the Homestead Grays and the Pittsburgh Crawfords. Yeah, and I heard you say on another interview that it was kind of difficult for your grandfather to be Josh Gibson's son because you tend to get overshadowed, at least as a player, and your grandfather was a player too, and I guess your great-great-uncle was also a player. Josh Gibson's brother, Jerry Gibson, Mm -hmm. played in the Negro League, so it's pretty tough to be Josh Gibson's brother or Josh Gibson's son if you're also a baseball player. So what made your grandfather want to bring more attention to Josh, even though I guess it was probably difficult for him to be compared all of his life to his father? Yeah, and that's a good point. Um, So Josh Jr. also played baseball, and he was an infielder. He usually played second base or shortstop, and he played in the Negro Leagues, actually the last year of the Homestead Grays, 1949 and 1950. He also played in Canada for a long time. and so. You know, my grandfather used to always say that, you know, reporters would ask him, try to compare him to his father. You know, he was nowhere near the talent of his father. Um, But he would always say, like, you know, having that stress, uh, coming from a Hall of Fame baseball player as a son, trying to live in his shadows. And that 
wasn't his, you know, he didn't have that ability to live in his father's shadow. So he always talked about that, you know, being not only <laughs> the other thing he used to say is it was like a double curse because he played baseball, but he also had the same name. So yeah. that's the other thing. He had the same name as his father, but he knew his father was a great baseball player. And I think it was it, it, when I talked to my grandfather about this years ago, it wasn't really about Josh as a baseball player. It was more of the adversity these guys actually went through. He wanted people to know about, not just about Josh Gibson, but what these men went through during a time of segregation and not able to go in certain hotels, go in certain restaurants, discriminated against. So our foundation, the foundation was really focused on the legacy of Josh Gibson. I was, and it's, when I say the legacy, it's not just based off the baseball career. It's based off his career playing in the Latin countries, playing in the Negro Leagues, in an era where you know blacks weren't accepted. So what inspired you to embark on your campaign to have the MVP award renamed in your great-grandfather's honor? Yeah. So like you said, in August, there's been a big push for this MVP. And I think back in, I read an article and it talked about, you know, everything going on in America right now with the whole Black Lives Matters, right? And there's been a lot of movement going on and a lot of statues and monuments being removed. And so Terry Pendleton, Barry Larkin, and Mike Smith was the first ones to come out an article back in the summertime saying that Kennesaw Landis's name should, re- re- should be removed off of the MVP award. And so once that happened in October, as you mentioned, uh, that was a first step. And so now we're trying to um, make a campaign for Josh's name to be on there. There's other, just other two good candidates, which is Frank Robinson and Branch Rickey. Um, but we feel as though Josh is a great candidate for the renaming of the award. And since you started working for the foundation or, or since you became aware of Josh Gibson's career, we've gotten much better stats and, and coverage mm-hmm. of the Negro Leagues through the efforts of people like Larry Lester and John Hallway and others. And if you go to the Negro Leagues statistical database at Seam Heads now, you can see fairly complete stats for Josh Gibson and others in their league games. And I wonder how that has helped your efforts or or whether it has uh, affected people's appreciation at all of Josh or of other Negro leaguers to have those numbers kind of codified. And we had Larry Lester on the podcast earlier this year and talked about all the effort that has gone into finding those stats. But what does that mean for someone like you who is trying to bring this legacy to greater attention to actually have that data? Yeah, well, you know, the more data they find is is great because of the Negro Leagues back then, you know, some of their stuff may have been lost or not able to be able to keep up with. But the more data, the better. You know, recently there was an article in the L.A. Times where they're thinking about including Negro League stats into the major league records. And there's been a big effort for that. And, um, you know, if that happens, uh, I want to say Josh will be in the top five and I think he'll be second in batting average behind Ty Cobb and fifth in on-base percentage behind Ted Williams, Babe Ruth, and a few other players. So, you know, I think right now the timing is great for us, for Josh Gibson, because of what we're trying to do with the MVP. Um, the more that is out there and it's talked about with Josh's name, it helps us bring a more awareness of why we, think, why we feel as though Josh is a great candidate for the MVP award. 
Yeah, and I wrote about that effort earlier this year in MLB finally considering making those stats of major league designation according to MLB. And as a lot of people have pointed out, that would sort of change certain leaderboards, you know, because the Negro Leagues tended to play shorter schedules. You wouldn't say have Josh Gibson at the top of the all-time home run list, even though his plaque in Cooperstown alludes to Mm -hmm. the 800 home runs he hit. That's, you know, including semi-pro games. Games or, or non-league games, and if you go to seam heads, you see 238 quote-unquote official home runs, although that's not complete, and I know some are missing because Larry mentioned when we talked to him that he knows of some home runs that Josh Gibson hit that are not in the record because they can't find the box scores, mm-hmm. um, but I guess you would still have you know rate stats and, and short seasons that would show up if you were to look at a list of the highest average seasons, for instance. You know, we all talk about Ted Williams as the last 400 hitter, but Josh Gibson hit 400 in a season after Ted Williams did. You know, he yep. hit 400 multiple times and he hit 441 in 1943. And so I guess we would have to adjust, you know, how we share those stats because uh, these players had extraordinary seasons and granted, you know, shorter schedules and fewer plate appearances and all that. Mm-hmm. But I guess that would require some reframing of, of how we say those things. And, you know, some of the stats that maybe we've all memorized or the trivia questions we all know. And I guess that would bring greater attention to Josh and other players from that time. Yeah. And as you mentioned too, I mean, when you talk about these records, yeah, we know their season probably wasn't as long as major league baseball seasons. Uh, I think their season might've been half compared to the baseball, major league baseball season. We know they didn't have the finances like the major leagues did. But I would say this, um, you know, we look at that time, you know, of course, Josh, Satch, Oscar Charleston, Cool Papa Bell, all those guys would love to paint the majors. Kenneth Mount Landis, you know, he stopped them from that. He denied them that opportunity. So these guys had to do what they had to do. They, had to, they played in the Latin countries. They played in America. They played in the Negro League. So they played some barnstorming against some Major League Baseball players. And so they did what they did. They did what they had to do to play. And again, like I said, I always say it was not up to their choice. But when you talk about the statistics, you know, sometimes I wonder if Major League Baseball statistics is, are, are correct. Uh, you know, back mm-hmm. then, we everything was handwritten, you know, so everything wasn't typed into a computer. And so, you know, and, it, and, it, and, it, and they talk about the talent in the Negro Leagues. The talent wasn't always that great in the majors as well. I and mean, there were some great players, of course, but, you know, there wasn't always a lot of great talent in the majors at that time as well. And you take some of the greatest teams in the Negro League, you take the 1935-36 Pittsburgh Crawford team, I would put that team against any Major League Baseball team. That team had five Hall of Famers on that team uh, with Josh and Satchett leading the way. So, and then in 1937-1945, Homestead Grays won nine pennants in a row. And so there are some great teams in the Negro League and some great talent, but we can't just discredit all their records and things like that because who knows about Major League Baseball? We assume, because it's Major League Baseball, we assume everything is correct, Major League Baseball, right? But we don't know that for a fact. You know, we don't know that for a fact. And I, was, I can guarantee you that if those guys would have had a chance to play in the majors, there would be a lot of records from African-American baseball players right now that will stand in the majors. Yeah, and I was going to ask you, I mean, we've brought up Landis and his role in maintaining the the color line. I would imagine that you've gotten a fair amount of support for your campaign, but that the folks who perhaps have pointed to other players as a better fit for renaming um, would point out that 
that Gibson never played in Major League Baseball. But I think that for you, it seems like that's a part of why you view his name as the right one to put on the award. So I'm wondering if you can talk a bit about the relationship, not only that obviously his career stands on its own, but that selecting him in relation to Landis would be a powerful statement for that award. Yes, as you mentioned, and we get the feedback from that. We have some great positive feedback and we have some other feedback. You know, as you mentioned, you know, a lot of feedback has been saying that, well, you know, Josh didn't play in the majors. And I'm like, okay, well, if you read my, if you read my essay from the undefeated, it kind of explains our position. We know Josh didn't play in the majors. Uh, we, he's not, he, he didn't play in the majors because of Candace on Mount Landis. So our story is more of a redemption, poetic justice type story. It's more of a redemption type story. Well, is is that, you know, how ironic would it be for a person like Josh Gibson replace the name that denied him and other great Negro League baseball players the opportunity to play in the major. So, yes, Josh is in the forefront of this renaming award, but it's not just about Josh Gibson. It's about all the other great Negro League baseball players as well. So if right. Josh was to be able to be on this award, he's not representing just Josh Gibson. He's representing all those players from 1920 to 1944 that were denied the opportunity to play because of Kenneth Lamont Landis. So it's not about playing the majors. It's not about Josh. We know that. It's about a redemption. And we feel as though if Josh had that opportunity to play in the majors, who knows how many MVPs he would have won. I know he would have won one or two. Uh, he could have right. won multiples. He could have won just like Frank Robinson in the American League as well as the National League. But he didn't have that opportunity. So so our, our, our position is more of a, like you said, it's a poetic justice. It's, it's about what Kennesaw Mountain Landis did in those early 1920s to deny these African-Americans opportunity. And now we have a chance to have some kind of redemption of having Josh's name replace that same person who denied these guys this opportunity. Yeah, seems to me, I mean, there's no doubt about what a, a great player Gibson was and, and that he would have been an MVP contender perennially if he had been in the NL or the AL at that time. So I don't think the fact that he didn't play in those leagues means that he can't have his name on those leagues awards. I, I guess for me, the criticism that I would anticipate hearing maybe is that MLB is almost appropriating his name in a way like, you know, if MLB or the BBWAA during his life and during his career kept him out, then should they even be entitled to use his name and, and put his name on their award, you know, and could that maybe obscure the way that they kept him out of that league during his lifetime? And I guess for you, the good that would be done by that in bringing attention to Josh and to other Negro leaguers kind of outweighs that concern? Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, like you said, it, it outweighs it definitely because, like I just said, it's not it's not just about Josh Gibson. And, and we know, if you know Kennesaw Mountain Lance's story, he came into baseball at the time, you know, he was a judge, right? He came into baseball to barely put a hold on the Black Sox scandal. Okay, so that was his main objective at that time. And you know, you hear a lot of people say, well, you know, he did deny African-Americans the opportunity. I don't know why they, I don't know why people say that, because if, if, if he didn't, he wasn't a commissioner. If he wasn't the commissioner, maybe Black should have played. But as soon as he got out, 44, I mean, 47, who comes in? Jackie Robinson. So there was all these other great players before that. So when you talk about the the situation of Kennesaw Mount Landis, it's more of, like I said, it's, it's, it's a situation where the, the voters voted on it. They removed his name. That's the first step. You know, baseball winter meetings are going on right now virtually. 
from December 7th through the 10th. This may happen as soon as this week. You know, I've talked to several writers who have a voting for the base for the Baseball Writers Association, and this vote may happen any minute. It may be happening now as we're talking, but uh, it can happen soon. So we're just hoping that they take the consideration and, and look at all the facts about why, you know, they think Josh should be a great candidate. Yeah, I was going to ask you, what has the reception to the campaign been so far? Have you found sympathetic ears among the BBWA? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, we did an article with Bob Nightingale, who's a voter as well from USA Today. Jason Mackey, who's a local reporter here in Pittsburgh, uh, he's a voter. We've gotten some support publicly from the Baseball Writers Association, some members. But I would say this, since we started our campaign, we've seen a lot of momentum about Josh, a lot of social media momentum. There was just an article in the um, Baseball Hall of Fame uh, winter winter edition of their, uh, it's called Dreams and Memor- Memories and Dreams publication. There's a nice article about Josh that just came out. And like I said, we've done several articles uh, locally and nationally about this. So it's been some momentum definitely about Josh. One of my buddies said he was listening to a, his uh, Sirius XM satellite and he heard Josh's name being mentioned as far as a replacement for Kennesaw Mountain Land is his name. So as far as I know, some great feedback. Only only negative feedback I've been hearing is on, from social media is based off of people say Josh didn't play in the majors. And when they say that, I don't respond to it, but I just say, read the article before you yeah. say that. We know he didn't play in the majors. <laughs> <laughs> And when we were doing a, a series of episodes on the Negro Leagues earlier this year, we talked about Soul of the Game. We talked about the Bingo Long traveling all-stars and Motor Kings. And both of those movies have representations of Josh in them, whether fictional or, mm-hmm. well, lightly fictionalized, but supposed to be Josh. And I wonder what you've learned about him that kind of makes misconceptions out of some of the ways that he's been portrayed or or just stories that have been passed down about him that one wouldn't know just from his career or from his numbers, you know, what he was like as a person or what he wasn't like as a person that he has been represented to be. Yeah. Well, like you said, those movies, like you said, sold the game and being along traveling all stars, uh, being along with the first movie that came out in, James Earl Jones uh, in that movie portrayed Josh, which is more of a um, that movie was a great movie, but I thought it I thought it really portrayed the Negro Leagues as more of an entertainment type of mm-hmm. ball club at that time because they was doing a lot of clowning around and things like that. They didn't really take it seriously. Seriously, so the game that movie definitely was different because it, the way it portrayed Josh was like he was an alcoholic and he was on drugs and he had a mental problem. And I will say this from what what I was told through my family. Uh, my grandfather never was on drugs, never had a mental problem. Yes, he did drink. He was an alcoholic. He was more of a social drinker. I'm pretty sure like any other casual person or athlete at the time, he was a social drinker. Mentally, he was okay. He just said that he had brain tumor. And so that's what he died from. So, you know, I don't know the effects of a brain tumor and I never had a brain tumor. So I think some of those t- things that maybe he had maybe some outbursts or so he was going through some things they probably thought was mentally was more of his conditioning of having a brain tumor that he was going through. Mm-hmm. And so those are some of the things that we like to just kind of clear up is that, yeah, he was a social drinker, but the way in the movie of Soul of the Game made it seem like, you know, he was losing his mind. And um, you hear stories of Josh dying of a broken heart, right? Because he didn't make it to the majors. And I'm like, okay, well, 
I don't know, like the Josh Gibson, actually, like even before he died, said, hey, I'm dying of a broken heart. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> <laughs> but those are the stories. Those are the those are some of the stories you hear about Josh. And, you know, but the main thing is just like sold that you brought since you brought sold the game. I just want to just clear that up is that and I get it. When you say fictional, people try to sell tickets. They want to they want to get audience and come to the uh, screens and to the movie theater. So they got to fictionalize some of these scenes. But um, that scene there, that never that never happened. So, uh, but Josh, yes, he did drink, but more of a social drinker, and that was pretty much it. I'm curious what the experience of seeing him inducted posthumously, of course, but inducted into the Hall of Fame was like for you and your family. Well, I was only four years old, so... So you don't have a lot of clear memories of it then? <laughs> I don't have no memories of it. I just hear conversations. But sure. at the time he got inducted, Josh Jr. was there, his wife, which is not my grandfather. My grandfather remarried, which is his wife was there. My aunt was there, which is his daughter. And Josh Gibson's sister was there. And so I would say this from what my grandfather told me. So Satchel Page went in 71. Right. And my grandfather always said this, and I don't know if you heard the speech from Ted Williams. Ted Williams got into the Hall of Fame in 1966. During his Hall of Fame speech, he mentions that he hopes that one day players from the Negro League like Satchel Page and Josh Gibson get inducted to the Hall of Fame. My grandfather, till he died, always credited Ted Williams. He felt that if Ted Williams doesn't mention Josh and Satchel's name in his speech, he doesn't think Josh goes. He doesn't think Satch goes in in '71. He thinks Satch goes in much later, but he, he used to always credit Ted Williams for that. And later, I found out that Ted Williams' mother was Mexican, and he hid that from society in Major League Baseball because he didn't want to be discriminated against. So once I heard about that, and then I realized what he said in his speech, it all made sense to me because he was a minority, and being that his mother was Mexican and for him to think that he would be discriminated against because of that, he stood up for the players that could not stand up for themselves, which was Josh and Satch. And so uh, when you talk about that, the Hall of Fame, you know, I, I'll say this. Uh, people ask me if we were to get to MVP award, how would that, what, what, what kind of status would that be? It would be just like the Hall of Fame. You know, it would just be like the Hall of Fame because Josh Gibson's, Name will always be connected to the Hall of Fame, right? He was always going to be a Hall of Fame 1972, no matter what. Same with this MVP award. He'll be on this MVP award, hopefully forever or for a very long time. So the Hall of Fame is definitely something that is very important. Probably the most important piece of Josh's legacy, uh, being that he never played in the majors. And the Hall of Fame accepted these guys into their Hall of Fame. And you mentioned that, you know, it's probably a, a distortion to say that he died of a broken heart and a brain tumor seems like a, a sufficient explanation to mm -hmm. explain how he died. But he didn't live to see Jackie make the Dodgers. He died early that year in January. He was just 35 years old. And even though he was sick, he was a, a great player, really, right up until the end. Even in 1946, he was still putting up great stats. And I wonder if it is known with great detail how he did feel about being barred from the majors. You know, I, I imagine that a lot of players in the Negro Leagues felt the same way about that. But I wonder whether it was a, a source of kind of, you know, constant 
irritation to him or whether he just sort of resigned himself to it or or accepted it. And I wonder also if you know or or think often about what might have happened if he had not had that brain tumor. And, you know, of course, he was in his mid-30s by that point, and maybe that would have given teams an excuse to pass him over. But Mm -hmm. he was still such a a good player at that point, and, you know, he was younger than Satchel Paige. So (laughs) maybe he he still could have made it at that point. Yeah, you know, believe me, a lot of what ifs, a lot of what ifs, what could have, should have been, it could goes through goes through my head and my family's head. Mm-hmm. Like you mentioned, Josh died at a very young age, thirty five years old, brain tumor. And like you mentioned, Satch went in. Who knows how old Satch was when he went into the Cleveland when he went to the Cleveland Indians? But when he went in, he did very well uh, for himself. And I think he was might have been rookie of the year or close to getting rookie of the year that year when he went in. And so that speaks volumes of the talent of the Negro Leagues. When you take a player like Satchel Page, who is well beyond his prime, right? And he goes into the Major League Baseball for the Cleveland Indians, and he's winning games, and he's doing very well. And just imagine if you'd have had Satch in his 20s, you know what he would have done. And so, yeah, so, you know, if Josh didn't have the brain tumor and he lived on, uh, would he would have had a chance to play in his later years in the majors? Probably so. But the thing that I would say is that, you know, sometimes in your later years, you know, who knows how great you would have been. Mm-hmm. You know, it might have would have hurt his credibility, yeah. you know, because you never know. So I'm fine with taking his legacy the way it is now. Um, I'm happy with his legacy. I'm happy him playing in Negro Leagues and playing in Latin countries. You know, he is in the Hall of Fame, not just in Cooperstown, but he's in the Hall of Fame in Mexico. He's in both states' Hall of Fame, Pennsylvania State Hall of Fame, because he he lived in Pennsylvania, of course, and he played in Pennsylvania. And then he's in his Georgia Sports Hall of Fame because he was born in Buena Vista, Georgia. He was the Puerto Rico Winter League MVP winner in 1941-42. So a lot of accomplishments for Josh. But, yeah, we've always thought of if he was lived till he was in his 80s, you know, what would have happened. So, mm-hmm. but unfortunately... Um, God caught him a little earlier and uh, he left. So, we, we, but that's what I'm here for. That's what I'm mm-hmm. doing. I'm here to carry on his legacy through the foundation and make sure that people don't forget about Josh Gibson. And so much of his legacy as a player is the bat and how many home runs he hit and how far he hit them. And people call him the Black Babe Ruth or people call Babe Ruth the White Josh Gibson. And their numbers really are kind of comparable. I mean, Babe Ruth has a, a career 206 OPS plus and Josh Gibson against Negro Leagues competition, according to Seamheads, had a 200 OPS plus. And of course, he was doing it as a catcher. And I feel like that's the thing that maybe doesn't get talked about as much. And so I wonder what he was like as a catcher it's harder i guess to illustrate a catcher's skills you know you you can look at the number of home runs or how Mm -hmm. far the home runs went and that tells you what he was like as a hitter but it's harder to kind of quantify the defensive performance so was he a a good catcher as well what did people say about his defensive performance well he's a great catcher from what i've heard he was a great catcher um some people i hear stories where he didn't even have to get out his crotch and he was throwing people out second base that even stand up. And so that alone, and we all know, as, in, as if you know anything about baseball, the catcher is the probably that is, honestly, probably the probably that is the toughest position in baseball. You, you know, you're on your knees constantly and you get, you know, ran over. And, and you, like I said, you don't get a chance to move. You're stuck right there on your knees. So 
from what I was told and uh, what I read, he's was he was a great catcher. You know, there's a quote by Walter Johnson, uh, who's a Hall of Famer, MVP winner. He talks about, you know, there's a big league player that any big league club would have for two hundred thousand dollars. His name was Gibson. You know, he said, you know, he throws like a rifle. He hits, he hits, he hits bombs. And but too bad this Gibson guy's a color guy. That's that's the key part right there. That the last part of the quote he says, "Too bad this Gibson fellow is colored." And so when you talk about his catching ability. People always say, you know, he was, a, he was a heck of a catcher. And I think that's why I was saying as far as the MVP, because he was very well-rounded. Yes, we all know about his home run greatness and how what he did and uh, batting slugging percentage and on-base percentage and, and things like that. But defensively, you know, he was a great catcher as well. Mm-hmm. And um, so we talk about an MVP player. You want to talk to the guy about his offense as well as defense. And since then, for me, I will also add into his ability off the diamond, you know, what he was like as a person. And like I said, he was a great family man. He loved his family. Uh, People may or may not know that Josh was a single parent at the age of 19 years old. You know, his wife, dad in labor, giving birth to their twins. And so here you are with 19 years old, just lost your wife. You got two young, you got two young kids, and you're trying to play baseball to to to, to provide for your family, but you got to deal with racism. You know, at 19 years old, when I was 19, I was a freshman in college. So, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so you talk about, you know, that's why I always talk to our kids about overcoming adversity. You know, when you talk about the nickel leagues, you talk about some of the Josh Gibson stores, some of the other great players. You and you listen to the, some of the things they went through. And then you talk to a kid, and he's may having a bad day because his cell phone ain't working. And I'm like, listen, man, you know, do you know what these other guys went through just to have a just to have a positive day? You're you're upset about a cell phone, and so it teaches us it, uh, it teaches us about adversity. It teaches my family, especially our family, because we feel like we can overcome anything based off the things that Josh Gibson went through. Yeah. And so this is the centennial of the founding of the Negro Leagues, and that's brought a lot of attention to the Negro Leagues legacy, as has that centennial coinciding with the greater attention to Black Lives Matter and racial injustice. And that's led to things like Landis's name being stripped from the MVP award. So that has led to more attention, but it's also happening in the middle of a pandemic. And we talked to Bob Kendrick earlier this year about some of the things that he had planned that he wasn't able to do or or had to postpone. And yet that anniversary has, I think, also raised a lot of awareness. So how has this year worked for your foundation and for awareness of Josh Gibson? Are there things that you wanted to do that you weren't able to do and things that you were able to do that you didn't even anticipate being able to do? Yeah, it was a bad year. Basically, <laughs> just think it was, uh, you know, we had a lot of things planned for 2020. You know, like you say, you only got 100 years once, and this, one, this was going to be a big year for us. And we had three events actually planned for our foundation to raise money. We had a Josh Gibson Youth Classic, ages 11 and 12. We were bringing teams in from other cities to represent their Negro League teams. That was canceled in June. And then we were doing a symposium on the Negro Leagues. And then we were doing our annual big fundraisers, our Black Tie Gala. Those both events were in October. So, yeah, the, the, the COVID-19 really hurt us through this pandemic. It came at a bad time. So everything that we had planned for this year has been pushed to 2021. So hopefully uh, we will be able to celebrate our centennial 
which is what we call it 101 uh, next year. But also, too, is besides the centennial for us, 2022 will also be celebrating the 50th anniversary of Josh Gibson's Hall of Fame induction. Hmm. Um, he was inducted to the Hall of Fame in 1972. So 2022 will celebrate his 50th anniversary of the Hall of Fame induction. So we're hoping to have maybe, you know, two great years of 21 and 22 back to back. So you've highlighted those programs. Can you tell our listeners a little bit more about some of the other programs that the foundation runs and then also how they can support your work? Sure. Yep. Yep. So one, I would definitely say our website is joshgibson.org. We have several programs, meaning from we focus on inner city kids in education. So we have after school program. We partner with two local universities, which is Duquesne University here and the University of Pittsburgh to provide tutors for us. We have a curriculum in the schools called BOSA. And BOSA stands for Business Sports Academy. It teaches kids the business side of sports. This is a college credit course to Duquesne University. Uh, it's for juniors, sophomores, I mean, sophomore juniors and seniors. Uh, the courses are sports media, sports marketing, sports law, sports sales, and sports events. And we notice a lot of kids, several kids who wants to be professional athletes. And what I tell them is I'm not telling you to give your dream, give up your dream of being a professional athlete. But if you do not make it, you can still be involved in sports behind the scenes. And that's what that curriculum teaches them. We have a summer camp called Camp Challenge that goes on. We have our two other program, which is a STEAM program for boys, 68th grade. And then we also have a boys and men mentoring program. So those are our major um, academic programs. Then also we have our Josh Gibson Baseball Academy. So all those and for all that information we found on our website. We also are running a campaign for our uh, MVP, which is our hashtag is JG20MVP. And then we also have a website, which is JG20MVP.com. You'll see a lot of information about what we're doing, about our campaign, a lot of support, uh, a lot of quotes from different players that we have listed on our site. And so, yeah, please visit both sites joshgibson.org or jg20mvp.org to hear about more about the Josh Gibson Foundation and the MVP campaign. Great. Yeah, we'll link to all of that and uh, you can find Sean on Twitter as well and the foundation at joshgibson underscore 1911. And one more thing I wanted to ask about a, a few years ago, you were involved in an effort to save some statues, right? That were mm-hmm. being removed from Legacy Park near PNC outside the, the Pirates Ballpark there. What happened there? Why were those statues being removed? And I know that some of them are at the Negro Leagues Museum now, right? So what part did you play in preserving them and making sure that they were still on display to the public? Well, I didn't play, you know, I wish I played a bigger part because we just did still be here. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah. uh, no, and it's actually um, Pittsburgh Magazine. The recent article to Pittsburgh Magazine has an article about, I mean, has an article about those statues that just came out. So what happened was in 2015, I had a meeting with the Pirates. They called me into a meeting and said, hey, we're going to remove the statues. Basically, just like that. And I said, well, why? And they said, well, the area the statues are in, we're trying to make it, we're going to make it to a bar area. We're going to have a flat screen TV, a big bar where people can come down there and congregate and have a socialize and stuff like that. I said, okay. So my thinking was, okay, well, then why don't you spread the statues out like a scavenger hunt? You know, say have Josh Gibson in Section 201, then have a sign that says to go see Satchel Page, go to 302 to see Cool Papa Bell. You know, so spread them out through the ballpark, you know, so they're still in the ballpark, but they're just spread out. They didn't like that idea. 
So when they didn't like that idea, now I'm now kind of getting upset. So I think, okay, you called me down here for this meeting just to tell me this. And so make a long story short, they asked me what to do with the statues. At that time, my mind is, I'm upset that they get rid of them. So I'm not even thinking about what, the, what you can do with them. Mm-hmm. So I get in the car as I'm driving. I said, well, man, if they're going to get rid of them. I said, we'll just take them and sell them. So I called the next day and I said, we'll take the statues. Not knowing that I could sell these statues, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, the crazy part is the first thing they said was, well, when can you pick them up? I'm like, what? Like I could just close them, come down in my car and just throw them in their back seat. And so David Hunt, I don't know if you heard of David Hunt from Hunt Auctions. You heard of he Hunt Auctions? Yeah. Good friend. So I called David. I said, hey, I, I think I might have, I don't know if I did something I shouldn't have done, but I got like seven life-size statues from the Pirates. Uh, do people buy statues? His exact words were, Sean, people buy anything. I said, okay. <laughs> so he came and got them. All-Star game was in Cincinnati that year. He said, look, we'll do this at the All-Star game. Well, it raised 195000 hmm. We got 195000 we raised. None went to the museum. Josh went to, it was three that went to a private museum in California. Josh Bucklinner and somebody else went there. Satch went to a guy in Ohio, and I can't remember where the other ones went. But yeah, that's what happened to the statues, basically. We were, they were sold, and the joke was, if the pirates would have known how much money we got from, they would never give them to us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, thanks uh, for all of your efforts and also for coming on to tell us about them. And I know there's also a petition going around about Josh being on the MVP awards and we'll share that too. So good luck with the rest of the campaign. Thank you, Sean. Well, thank you guys. As you mentioned, yeah, our website has all the information. The websites I gave everybody, the Josh Gibson website, as well as the MVP website, the campaign is on there. Uh, you know, I would encourage you to read the story first before you sign the campaign. Can kind of give you an understanding of why this MVP award means so much to us and what our reasoning is behind it is. And if you understand that, then I suggest you sign the petition and, and, and we can go from there. All right. Thank you very much, Sean. Thanks, Sean. Thank you. All right, that will do it for today. Shortly after we recorded this episode, we got the news that Dick Allen had died. Yet another really great legendary player lost in 2020, which has been a difficult year in so many ways. And one of those ways has been the losses of an inordinate number of great players and Hall of Famers. Allen, of course, is the great player from the 60s and 70s, primarily for the Phillies, who is often cited as one of the best players not in the Hall of Fame, and there's still considerable support for him as a Hall of Fame candidate. He was 78 years old, and Dick Allen was a former MVP. He won the AL Award in 1972, and in fact, Allen's last tweet in late November was quote-tweeting an article about renaming the MVP Award after Josh Gibson and saying, this sounds like a great idea. So obviously, Allen was in favor of it, and man, what a player he was, what a hitter. If you look on the Fangraphs leaderboard, set a minimum of 7,000 plate appearances in the modern era. So since the start of the 20th century, there have been 410 hitters who have had that many plate appearances, and Allen's weighted runs created plus 
ranks 14th at 155, right between Mel Ott and Willie Mays. So he didn't have a very long career and doesn't rate well defensively, but he was quite an offensive force. You really have to adjust for the offensive environment when you look at Allen's stat lines. In the context of today, his slash lines from the late 60s and early 70s don't look so hot, but back then, they were really impressive. And he may yet get into the Hall of Fame sometime soon, and it's unfortunate that he didn't live to see that and enjoy it. And although his career obviously came post-integration, it was certainly still affected by racism. You can read all about how race affected how he was perceived and portrayed. His number, at least, was finally retired by the Phillies earlier this year. And I will link to two pieces for now that you might find interesting about Allen. One was written for Fangrass by Shakia Taylor a couple of years ago. It's called Is Baseball Ready to Love Dick Allen? And then the other is a BP piece, an excerpt from Jay Jaffe's entry on Allen in his book, The Cooperstown Casebook. So check out the show page for links to both of those, and perhaps we will discuss Alan more on an upcoming episode. And we will also, of course, have to discuss the Lance Lynn trade, news of which just broke as I was about to post this episode. You can support Effectively Wild on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some small monthly amount to help keep the podcast going and get themselves access to some perks. Richard Smiley, Tyler Birch, Kenny Felicelli, Elijah, and Matt Aaron Judge O'Gorman, perhaps not the name on Matt's birth certificate, but in a time of some upheaval for the world, and for this podcast specifically, we thank you very much for your continued support, without which we could not continue to do this the way that we do. You can also join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. That helps us too by bumping us up the rankings and helping us attract new listeners. You can email me and Meg, and at least for now, still Sam, at podcast.fangraphs.com, or you can message us via the Patreon site if you are a supporter. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance, and we will be back with another episode a little later this week. Talk to you then. Goodbye, Dick. Goodbye, Dick. I really can't believe you're gone, but I saw you walk across the White House lawn. Goodbye, Dick. Goodbye, Dick.